Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you for uh, this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have here at the end of a Wednesday to uh, dig into the Word uh, week after week together. Um, Lord, as we're studying through the Old Testament, and as we are um, spending less time in each book but covering more territory uh, than we might normally in a short period of time, uh, I pray that you would help us to, um, to connect the dots. I pray that you would help us to to not miss details that you intend to be seen in connection with one another. I pray that as we kind of zoom out and take a, a view of Scripture from maybe a little, a little higher uh, altitude, that we would um, we'd be blessed and that you'd be glorified as we see a very big story with a lot of details and a God who is completely sovereign over every single one of them, um, especially so in Ezra tonight. Uh, Lord, I pray that, um, that your people would be encouraged as we look at the text and as we see um, situations of hopelessness and concern where you're doing a lot more than we realized and uh, where you're showing that hope is, isn't, isn't dead when maybe it feels like it to us. I pray that we would also be encouraged at the power of the word tonight. Uh, we love you, Lord. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we finished our First and Second Chronicles study, and this week we'll be taking a look at Ezra. So go ahead and turn to Ezra. It's right after Second Chronicles, if you haven't turned there already. <clears throat> um, if this is one of your first times here, what we do on Wednesdays is we're going through um, the Old Testament right now. Uh, we're, we're, we're taking it. We spent a few years in Genesis, then we spent a few years in Exodus, and when we hit Leviticus, I didn't really want to spend a few years in Leviticus, and so we prayed through that diligently and realized that um, it'd be a great time to make a shift and begin to look at, uh, do more overview studies of the Word to cover um, larger portions of the Word in less time so as to give us um, as full a perspective as possible that's really informed by um, the completeness of the Scriptures. And so we generally spend about two weeks on each book. Um, this is one of the rare occasions where we will spend one week on it. Ezra's only 10 chapters, and so uh, we can move through it a little more quickly. There's a lot to enjoy in it, though, and a lot that informs us and warns us and everything else that hopefully we'll look at tonight. So that's our approach on Wednesdays. Um, to understand the book of Ezra, we're going to need to climb into the timeline a little bit. Um, I'm not going to draw you a pathetic chicken scratch um, version of a timeline. I'm just going to share it verbally and hope that it's, it sits in. Uh, together with Nehemiah, um, these two books cover about a century, and actually... Um, in the original canon of Scripture, Ezra and Nehemiah were one book, and I don't remember what year it was, but um, it was many years ago that they turned them into, into two books um, for, because of the sake of the main characters. And, and so um, as we read them, we'll, we'll read them together, we'll study them together, um, but they cover about a century from 539 B.C. to about 433 B.C., so just over a century. And the book of Ezra describes a first wave of exiles who returned to Judah under King Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple in the years 539 to 516 BC, as well as a second wave who returned with Ezra more than 50 years later, around 458 BC. So as long as we're all clear on that, the word you're looking for is renewal. If you're writing down notes, just write renewal because that's what the whole book's about. You need the timeline to understand what, what kind of years we're working with, what we're looking at here, where they are. They've been in Babylonian captivity, which changed into Persian captivity, 
which changed into go back and rebuild the temple. So we'll explain all that uh, throughout the course of the night, but the big theme is, is renewal. God refits them. He, um, he renews them. Uh, he, he draws them out of circumstances that seem horrible into circumstances that are surprisingly encouraging. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight. So renewal is the key word in all those dates that I just shared. So in 586 BC, the people of Israel were exiled into Babylon. When the Babylonian empire crushed Jerusalem, okay, they went in, the Babylonians literally tore down the walls, um, the foundation, everything. They trashed Jerusalem and carried tens of thousands of Jews away to Babylon. So we're, we're as, as far as this is, uh, this is right before Ezra 1.1. I'm wanting y'all to feel this context here. So they've been taken into Babylonian, Babylonian captivity. Jerusalem has been crushed. Um, the temple has been torn, torn down. Roughly 50 years pass, and the Babylonian empire actually kind of falls in on itself while they're in Babylonian captivity. So you have a people who were called to a particular place, who were exiled to another place, that place falls in on itself and was swallowed up by Persia, okay? The reason I tell you all that is, think about what it must be like to be one of those people. Like, you have this special calling on your life as God's people, you're taken into captivity, the people who take you into captivity implode on themselves, then another empire sort of swallows them up, and you're in a place of thinking, just think about what that would feel like as far as identity, um, uncertainty, um, concern for the future goes. Um, this brings us to the beginning of the book of Ezra. So look at Ezra 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 4. So all that's happened, and now they're technically in Persian captivity. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, um, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord uh, by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, he is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Now, this is a pretty monumental thing that just happened here. I want you to consider, like I said just a moment ago, how helpless it would feel to be taken captive by a nation that's taken captive by another nation. I'm betting it would feel like your entire identity, identity has potentially been lost. Um, in our world today, there are thousands and thousands of uh, people who are refugees who flee where they're at to go to other places. And it's interesting, like Syria would be one example. There's a lot of people fleeing Syria right now, and they're going to other places. They set up these big refugee camps. But it's interesting because in that dire circumstance, some of those people are now in a setting where they might be able to be reached with the gospel for the first time in a long time. And so what we're going to see here is it, it sure looks really, really difficult. It sure looks really uncertain. It sure looks pretty dire, pretty hopeless. Um, but as we see this, I want you all to connect with this goes on in our, in our world today a lot. There's a lot of people who are in circumstances that are very similar. 
I bring this up because of the remarkable movement of God in our circumstances, even when they feel as if they're dire. So um, to be clear, I just read those four verses. What has God done for Israel? He stirred up the king of Persia's heart. That's a, that's a big, is the king of Persia a lover of Yahweh? Okay. Is the king of Persia a, a, a Jew in any way? Is he maybe like a 10th Jew? No, he's the king of Persia. There is no ethnic connection. There is no, um, there is no uh, religious connection here. Now, um, what has the Lord stirred the king of Persia to do? To rebuild the temple. So who is the first person who is called to build a house for God? No, remember? Say that again? Moses, okay. And then who are some people later who, who were taking part in the building of a house for God? Solomon, and who else after that? David. And, and now who is taking part in building the house for God? Cyrus the king of Persia. Do y'all see how remarkable this is? Do y'all believe that the Lord can do that today? That he can move in the hearts of kings, that their, their hearts are like water in his hands. He has done this in the past and he can do this today and it should affect the way that we pray. Here he moved Cyrus, king of Persia, to build a house for the Lord. And not only that, what else did he do in those four verses we read? Oh, yeah, how about I hook you up with some gold and silver and beads and other things that are worth uh, monetary value and all other things to go and so that you can make your offerings and build this house that will be in Jerusalem. So not only was his heart stirred to let them go do this, but his heart was stirred to give them uh, riches and, and, and wealth and, and things that would be very helpful for the building of the house. So the Lord has done a lot in stirring the heart of the king of Persia. Um, Question, have any of you been in a circumstance that seemed completely hopeless, yet you saw God do something in it for your good and for his glory? And I'm, I'm actually looking for specific examples. I think it'd be sweet to share these if there are any. C circumstances where you thought, this is, this is just really bad. Like, everything right here looks horrible, yet God used it for, for your good and his glory. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, 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 certainly hasn't slowed you down at all, so, yeah, <laughs> awesome, what else? Any other examples? Yeah, awesome. I think a couple years back, Kate and I were being told about a daughter that was pregnant. She was 
Take that, doctor. Yeah. 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 When Clay dad passed away suddenly, uh, it was a very desperate situation. And we didn't really know where Carl was because we were. Yeah. And then shortly after we moved out here to a rural area with three acres, had nothing. Anything else? I know of at least ten other stories that are similar in this room, so that's why I'm giving it enough time. I don't want to. I don't want to rush anything. But um, suffice it to say that the Lord still moves like this. He still does that. It doesn't mean that when you're in that hopeless circumstance, it doesn't hurt. Um, that there's not very, very, very real pain. It doesn't mean that um, you're not allowed to mourn. It's just good for the Christian to know that um, Jesus will get his glory, and he doesn't waste circumstances. He doesn't waste heartache. He doesn't waste difficult um, situations. He doesn't waste hardships. And to know ahead of time, as we study our word, um, he's the kind of God that um, can change the heart of the king of Persia, um, that that's the kind of God we serve, and that there's example after example of how he still does things like that today. He still moves in that manner. And Sometimes that stories like that, we can be in a bitter place and that seems very fairy tale-ish or you hear other people's stories and you're like, yeah, that's nice. That's not my story. It still stinks. If you're in that place, I just want you to be encouraged that this is how God moves and he is trustworthy and he doesn't break his promises. And um, there's encouragement here, even when things seem very hopeless. So a very concise overview of the book of Ezra, chapters one through six, the people return to the land. Chapter 7 through 9, the people have their sin revealed. And in chapter 10, the people of God repent of their sin. That's kind of a a real brief. 1 through 6, they return to land. 7 through 9, their sin is revealed. And in chapter 10, the people repent of their sin. Or you could say it like this. God's hand restores, God's word reveals, and God's people repent. We're going to see this thread that kind of runs through it as we study it. So the people return to Jerusalem with the support of the king of Persia of all people, and they're getting to work rebuilding the temple. And I want you to look at what happens. You, you may be thinking, man, this, this almost sounds too good to be true. I mean, these people who were in like an exile within an exile, uh, a captivity within a captivity, have now been freed to go back to where they were taken from and to rebuild, and they've been given resources, and this is good. And I, we all would say, yes, that is very good. Now I want you to look at what happens in chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, what would be the difference between hiring warriors to frustrate someone's plans and hiring counselors to frustrate their plans? 
Yeah, there's an intimidation factor. Subtle. What else? Yeah, yeah. What else? It's really deceitful. It's sort of this almost conniving, like, serpenty <laughs> movement. Let's hire people to just use words to confuse people and use words to, to intimidate them and to make them afraid to build. You're called by God to do this work. You are equipped, like physically, by the king of Persia to do this work, yet the locals are saying, no, no, I think we're going to intimidate you and make you feel afraid to do this work. Okay, so um, this was a 15-year frustration. If you go from Cyrus to, uh, to uh, who was the other guy I said? Darius, that's about a 15-year frustration. A 15-year frustration. If some of y'all are in day three of a particular frustration, it may be good to be reminded this was a 15-year frustration. Um, And it's a great reminder for us to um, not try to determine what is true by what is popular. Don't try to determine what is true by what is popular. So many times... Well, I'll ask you, I'll pose it as a question. What is one way that many, 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 many churches substantiate the goodness of what they're doing? Numbers. Well, it didn't take long to find that answer. Numbers. Yeah, we we used to have to fill out these charts and graphs early on at Crosspoint. And when I started putting like three bajillion, um, they didn't want them anymore. I guess they weren't helpful. But um, so many times churches try to substantiate what they do by their numbers. Um, a lot of times, like, I'll meet some, maybe I'm at a conference in another state. Oh, I'm so-and-so, I'm from this church in this place. Oh, awesome, me, I'm from here. How, how many people do you have? It's like, what color is your carpet? It's, it's arbitrary. What, what do you, why, why is that the first question that comes out um, when, when you're talking about your church? So we try to substantiate sometimes what we do by our numbers, but defining success numerically in ministry is like saying the only way to be successful is by having the least amount of people as possible set themselves against your work. Does that make sense? Like, let's say there's 25,000 people in Greenville, and we have a church of 25,000. So we're very successful because no one disagrees with anything we do, and no one has set themselves against us. That's, what, that's how you're defining success. And it's not a good way to define success. Um, to be clear... The Christian is called to care about the community they're in. They're called to help the weak. They're called to to rescue those who need rescue, to help the oppressed, to provide food, resources, love, to be a good neighbor. Christians are called to do that in the community they're in. But that will not always result in open arms. They were doing a good work, and the people said, discouraged them in their good work and wanted to make them afraid in doing their good work. It was Jesus uh, who said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. And Paul tells Timothy, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So what happens here is really, really typical of what happens a lot of times when you're doing the work of the Lord. Someone will say, I don't like it, and I'm going to go against it. And what, 
the reason we, it's good in, in like Bible study time for us to, to hear that and to wrap our heads around that, to see a God who moved the heart of the king of Persia to take them out of captivity back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, and then people are discouraging them. It was a 15-year frustration to see that kind of movement. It's really good for us to be reminded that as soon as we meet resistance of some kind, it, that's not just a sign that you're doing something wrong. Just because you have some, there's some sort of resistance that does not mean that you're doing something wrong or that you need to stop what you're doing. Now, it may be that you are doing something wrong. That's why I think plurality is good and wisdom is, is held in plurality. An abundance of counselors is good. So if someone says, hey, would you consider this? Don't be like, well, you're just persecuting me. You're persecuting me because you don't, you don't agree with my ways. Don't be that guy. It may be that you need to listen and be teachable. Um, meekness of wisdom. But um, just because there is pushback on what you're doing does not mean that what you're doing is wrong necessarily. And that's what they're being reminded of here. So if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. So while our country may not be filled with people being murdered for their faith, there are many other Christians throughout the world where that's their daily reality. All throughout the world, there are people that are being threatened, their families are being put in harm's way because of their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. So we must not be so easily discouraged, and we must pray for perseverance. Um, for the sake of knowing how to better pray, um, I, I wanted to ask, what are some of the main things that hinder us from persevering in our faith? What are some of the main things for us? In our context where we're at, what are some of the things that keep us from really persevering in our faith? Because here, the thing that kept them from persevering at the time was that the people of the land discouraged them and made them afraid to build, and they hired counselors against them. They frustrated their purposes. Those are very tangible things we could grab onto that was a 15-year frustration for them. It doesn't mean that the work completely stopped necessarily, but it was certainly frustrated. So for us, what are those things? Hinder us from persevering in the faithful work God's called us to. Busy schedules. Yes. Yeah, a desire to walk by sight instead of by faith. Yeah. Yeah. 
What else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you want to, you know where the Spirit's moving. Spirit's moving. The Spirit will produce fruit at some point. So it's easy as a Christian to be like, ah, why am I not seeing the fruit that I think I should be seeing? That can certainly be discouraging. I wanted us to go through that exercise there to, to, to have a good idea on how to pray for one another. Because to me, that, that was kind of sobering. When I'm sitting in my office and I'm looking at my notes and I'm saying, okay, so what are some of the things that hinder us from persevering in the faith work we're called to? Like the first thing I thought was the first thing you said. A busy schedule? Well, that's, that's not persecution. Um, my own selfishness, that was one of the things. That, well, that's not persecution. Um, any other selfish desire that you, you know? And so I think it's a sobering thing to, to consider what opportunity we do have. And to consider, in large part, the things that keep us from it. Now, your discouragement is real. I mean, discouragement is very real, especially like if you're sowing into someone's life and you're like, you just feel like you're hitting a brick wall every time, or you feel like your prayers aren't being heard. That's a very, you can have a real sense of discouragement there, but I think it's good to just, to, to remember that um, we have so much opportunity. And so the things that are keeping us from persevering in our faith is we just voiced a lot of those. I want you all to be mindful of them so that we can pray about those. And actually tonight at the very end, we're going to pray about some of those specifics. So the work has been frustrated. So my question is, what is it that gets the Israelites moving forward again? And look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. So they're called out, they're in an exile within an exile. They go back to Jerusalem. They're getting to do the work. It's just a short matter of time before um, some people are saying, you know, we don't want them to do this work. Um, they're, they're against it. They use, uh, you know, deception, fear tactics, all, all sorts of things. So what, what gets them going again? What gets them back to doing the work that they've been called to do by God? And in 5, 1 through 2, it says, Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, And Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Um, So, what is it that gets the Israelites moving again? The leadership began supporting the process. How, specifically? Yeah, isn't that crazy? Everyone's frustrated, not doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, They've been sort of unseated by the circumstances. Someone preaches the word, and the people get back to work. This is beautiful. Yes, God's hand is on his people. here's, Here's what we're looking at. They preached the word, they prophesied the word of God, and the people got back to work. So they were frustrated by the circumstances, um, the prophets get up, say something, other guys get up, do something, and then they are moved to work. And in chapter 6, the temple is actually finished and dedicated, and the people celebrate Passover together. It's a big deal. So I don't want you to miss the movement of God and their success. God's hand is all through this. In one one, the Lord moves the heart of Cyrus. In one five, everyone in whose heart God had moved did what they were supposed to do. In 6.22, God changes the attitude of the king of Syria, And these non-Jewish kings both explicitly 
uh, recognize God's sovereignty. That's another thing that's kind of crazy in all this. The Lord God of Jerusalem told me to do this, and I better do it. So these pagan kings are acknowledging um, the sovereignty of Yahweh and telling the people, you better do what your God wants you to do, even though I don't believe in your God. This is a remarkable circumstance. And it actually shows wisdom and leadership. To give religious freedom is like, he's shown a lot of wisdom as the leader of a nation. Because when you start taking away particular people's religious freedoms, um, people turn against each other. And it doesn't, it's not a pretty, pretty sight. Um, but at the same time, in that horrible circumstances, oftentimes when the gospel will flourish. So um, seemingly counterintuitive, but God seems to always produce fruit where he wants it. And look at 7.9. Ezra sent to teach at the temple. And here's what I want us to look at. There's a theme that develops as Ezra goes and does this. And look at uh, 7.9. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. Now look at 8.18. And by the good hand of God, of our God on us, they brought us a man of discretion of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, son of Israel, named Sherebiah, um, with his sons and kinsmen. And then in 8.22, it says, For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king that the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. And then in 8.31, it says... Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. So what is the theme that's developing there? Should be pretty obvious. The hand of God. Absolutely. The hand of God is upon his people. Now, this is a good reminder that God is always doing far more than we know. Each of those times, it was dire circumstances. They're about to go and travel. And they could say to the king of Persia, hey, could you get some big dudes with some weapons to walk with us so we don't get attacked? But they're like, well, we told him that the hand of God was on us. Uh, this, are we, do we trust that it's on us like that much? Um, what are we going to do? And, and what we see here is that the Lord is always doing more uh, than we know. In the same way that God moved uh, with the Jews returning to Israel, God moves with us today in the same way that God was moving when Adam and Eve rejected him, so he moves with us today. In the same way that God moved with the king of Egypt when Joseph's circumstances seemed hopeless, in the same way that God affected King Nebuchadnezzar as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood at the entrance of a fiery furnace, and then actually while they were in the furnace, so God moves with us today. God does so much more than we... If, if we will take a few moments every day just to say, God, I'm so thankful that as I tend to every one of these details on my very busy American schedule, it is so good to know that you're tending to more details. It is so good to know that you are doing so much more than I even realize. And not only are you doing that in this moment, but you did it in all the moments before this, and you will do that in all the moments after this. Turn to Acts 17. Acts 17 is one of those, I've read this before, it never really set in, and a few weeks ago, Someone posted it as a Facebook status, and I actually said, huh, I don't know if it says that. 
I'm going to go look at that. I think maybe they, they sort of twisted that to make it seem as appealing as it seems. And turns out it's that appealing. Turns out um, they didn't go <laughs> and change it. And in Acts 17, this is a, to me, this is a really incredible verse and really good to sober up God's people wherever God has them. It says this in 17, 26 through 27. This is Paul addressing the Areopagus, and he, and he says, And he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. So why are you where you are now? According to that verse, why are you where you are now? You are somewhere now, why are you there? That's where God wants you. Why? So, so what? He does have a plan. So you'd seek him. And, and, and in seeking him, what might happen? You find him. And, and, and why does, like, how long are you going to be in, in the place you are right now? As long as he wants. Why? When did that go into play? He determined it. When? Before he made Yeah. We're going way back. So you are where you are because God has put you there and he has allotted a period of time and a boundary. Think about that. Like when you're at home and you're looking at your yard and you see where it turns into the neighbor's yard where the grass isn't quite as nice and manicured as yours, the weeds are higher. And just think, that boundary exists right there um, because, because God put it there. And I'm here in this neighborhood because God put me here, and I'm going to be here for as long as he wants me here. So he may move you because he has a lot of periods of time where he has you serving in particular manners in particular ways, or he may keep you somewhere for much longer than you ever thought he would keep you there. And he will use you as you see fit because the purpose of him having you there is that you would look for him, seek him, potentially feel your way towards him and actually find him. Like that's a lot of detail that he's tending to that we have no clue about. Like when, I just remember when we were going to buy our first house, I was like, I, I don't, this is a total fluke that we can buy a house. I just remember thinking that. I was thinking, people, I'm not going to ever buy a house. This is crazy. And this is just a fluke. This is crazy. Happens. According to this verse, the Lord said, I'm going to put you right here for as long as I want you here. Search me out. Seek for me and you'll find me. And as soon as I want you to go somewhere else, I'll put you somewhere else. Allotted periods of time, according to the wisdom of our God, when he was putting everything together in his wisdom. It's another thing. Wisdom existed before creation. Wisdom isn't a created thing. It says that wisdom was with God when he was creating. Just, yeah. Um, yes, that brings us to the scratchy timeline. I just want you all to picture that in your head for a moment. Um, don't do that. Don't picture it in your head. Um, <laughs> Uh, throughout the book of Ezra, um, one of the things we find Ezra doing is fasting and praying and teaching. Oh, I'm so glad you had that on hand. It is so helpful for our study in Ezra tonight. Um, one of the things we find Ezra doing throughout the book of Ezra 
is fasting and praying and teaching. That's one of the things we see. If we see God as all-powerful and completely able, one of the things I'm looking at is why don't we pray more? It's something that we see Ezra doing throughout the book. He's got a significant responsibility, but when we find him, he's, he's fasting, he's praying. And I wonder why we don't pray more. A theme in the book of Ezra is that belief in a sovereign God who tends to details in that manner, like allotted periods of time and moving the hearts of kings, belief in a sovereign God um, will show itself true in a commitment to prayer. And I, I think that if I would ask the question that I asked earlier and say, well, why don't we pray? The answers would probably be the, very similar to our, our busy schedules or we're just focused selfishly on, on other things. And if we believe in a God who moves like this, why would we not be more committed to prayer? I have a tendency to read through accounts like, like the account in Ezra and you see people not doing something, then they are doing something, and leadership did something, and there's some good structure. And, and I read through these accounts and I pick out the good order, the good plans, the good wisdom that was exhibited by the leadership, and I key in on those dynamics. And then in, in 6.13, we see the word diligence. It took diligence to carry out God's commands. And I think it's good for Christians to be reminded that diligence and good order go a long way for the Christian. Like, just because you have a schedule doesn't mean you don't trust God. Um, if you're not trusting God with the schedule, that's another thing altogether. But like, good order, a, a budget, um, a schedule, um, details in the home, good or, you know, having like one of the things calls on the life of the deacon is that he manages his household well. There's going to have to be details that go into that. How are you managing it? What, what roles do, are we assigned in our families? What responsibilities do we have? So diligence and good order go a long way in the Christian life. When I look at Ezra, I kind of want to read through and pick out, okay, oh, they did this here and they did this here. Ooh, that was smart. That was wise there. Um, and something we have to see is that diligence and good order alone are not enough. In Ezra... God restored his people, and Mark Dever says they did not restore themselves through good planning and stewardship drives. They did pray, however, and God sovereignly acted to answer their prayers. The reason I bring that up is that I know there's a lot of people in this room that are trying to do things better, trying to get things in better order. Um, it, maybe it's trying to just put some sort of order in your life. Maybe it's your schedule. Maybe it's your weight, your diet, your exercise, quiet times and devotions. Maybe it's time with your spouse. Maybe it's time with your children. Maybe it's your finances. It's God's design that all of these things be tended to worshipfully. I just read a book on, it, it, it was called Getting Things Done. It took me eight months to get the book done. Don't judge me. He's going to throw the first rock. Um, it took me eight months to get, the, to get the book done. I'm certain if I read it again, I'd do it much faster because of what I got from the book. But it's called Getting Things Done, The Art of Stress-Free Productivity. And it's a high-input, um, high-output, effective workflow management system. And I finished it, and I was like, man, everything's going to be different from here on out. This is going to be awesome. Staff's going to be different. Um, my church is going to be The family, the house is going to be different. And sometimes we think just because we have a plan that that's enough. Or have you ever felt smarter just because you ordered a particular book even though you haven't read it? You ever done that? I've done that. It's like, man, I ordered a book on getting things done, and I already feel better. Um, uh, too, too many of us all too often set up a program or a routine, and we move forward diligently, but we're not moving forward prayerfully. And in fact, sometimes it's just prayerlessly. And a lot of times the plans will fail, and we're left frustrated and confused. So what I want to encourage you 
is that um, your circumstance can change for the better. I mean, it, it may change for the worse. God's still very good in that. But there's, when it comes to discipline, the, the Lord calls us to be disciplined. He calls us to good order. But we can't achieve that prayerlessly. I mean, like, even if it's like, man, I, I want to I run three times a week and just, just do something to be healthier. Pray about that. Like, actually go to the Lord and say, Lord, get, don't just help me to muster what I reach down deep inside and find what I need. That, the deeper you reach, the darker it is, and you usually find sin and wickedness. Be encouraged by that. But, um, but like, go to the Lord in prayer for anything. You know, I've got to get my schedule in order. Pray about it. The Lord tends to those details. And so what we see is Ezra praying about uh, so many of these things as he's fasting and, and as he's praying and as he's teaching. He's, he's going to the Lord because he trusts the Lord. Um, Christian, dil- Christian diligence and discipline is marked by prayer and time in God's word. You can't be a wise Christian who doesn't pray and read your Bible, to put it really plainly. And here's why. In both prayer and God's word, God actually reveals things to us. That's the thing that we forget so often. The reason we have to do that is that when we pray and when we read our word, God actually reveals things to us. Like every time we do it, there's something new that we can see. There's some beauty that we can gaze upon. There's some wisdom that we can glean so that we can move more faithfully. So when we go to the word and we go to God in prayer, he actually shows things to us. Between chapter 6 and 7, there is a 50-year break. So this book of Ezra is not all like perfectly chronologically like they did this, then they did this, then they did this. There's a 50-year break between uh, chapter 6 and 7. And at the beginning of 7, we see Ezra come in. Ezra um, was still in exile with a bunch of other Jews. So it wasn't like every Jew go build the temple. It was particularly Jews went to build them, but a lot of the others were still in exile while this was happening. So the beginning of the book of Ezra, the king's heart has moved Um, Some Jews are sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple, um, but some Jews stayed in exile. And one of the ones that stayed back with all the others in exile was Ezra. And then he enters in chapter 7. So look at 7. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. I already read part of this earlier, and I'm going to read it again. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Shariah, uh, whatever, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, uh, Shalom, Zadok, Achatib, um, Achachach, skip down to verse 6. This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants. Remember all that we learned about back in Exodus. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Now look at verses 23 through 24. Whatever is decreed by the God of heaven, let it be done in full. Some of y'all's versions may say, let it be done diligently. For the house of the God of heaven 
lest his wrath be against the realm of the kings and his sons. We also notify you that it shall not be lawful to impose tribute, custom, or toll on any one of the priests, the Levites, the singers, the doorkeepers, the temple servants, or other servants in the house of God. So we see our first 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we see people being diligent in that. So if you have that title, you should probably be diligent about your details. What we're seeing here is this, diligence to the full. And we see Ezra saying, I'm going to study the word, do the word, teach the word. That's a good order if you're ever called to be a teacher of the word. Don't just study the word and teach the word and leave out the do the word part in the middle because that'll lead you into, into sin. But God's word is really powerful through the book of Ezra. When spoken by Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra, the result is that a people are rightly motivated and mobilized for kingdom work. If you're taking notes, motivated and mobilized are what happens. Motivated and mobilized. They're motivated and they're mobilized when the word is taught to them rightly for kingdom work. So when you're feeling hopeless and unmotivated or discouraged, don't ever underestimate the power of God's word. It's sort of like what we learned about song a couple weeks ago. If you don't feel like Singing, sing until you feel like it. If you don't feel like listening, sing until you do. Well, if you don't feel that motivation or that encouragement, don't underestimate the power of God's word because when it is spoken, when it is taught, when it is heard, it has a lot of power. Part of the reason for that is the word also reveals our sin. Look at 9, 1 through 5. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people. Essentially, what's happened here is that they took wives from the land that they went to. They're not supposed to do that because the warning that was given way back was if you allow intermarriage to happen, what's going to happen is that they will lead your people away to, to serve their gods. Idolatry is the inevitable result of this intermarriage. And so um, it says in verse 3, as soon as I heard this, this is Ezra, I tore my garment and my cloak, and pulled hair from my head and my beard, and I sat appalled. Circle that word, appalled, in your Bible. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled, circle it again, until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting, there he is doing it again, with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees, and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And he cries out, saying, God, I am ashamed of what the people have done. You freed them to go rebuild the temple, and they, they intermarried with the people, and they're headlong into idolatry. When was the last time you were appalled over sin? Appalled. Not just offended, but appalled. To such a degree that you would cry out to God for forgiveness for sins that maybe you weren't even a part of. Ezra wasn't intermarrying, but he hit his knees and said, God, I'm ashamed. What he says is, I'm ashamed that our sins are piled higher than our heads. We have so much shame that we've brought into this when you freed us to go and rebuild the, the temple. And, and he's owning that to some degree, and he's going to the Lord because he is appalled. <laughs> the sin at hand was that of intermarriage. Now, I want to be really clear. This has nothing to do with skin pigment or racial purity. Um, those who call upon these verses to uphold typical Southern stereotypes do so foolishly. The issue at hand is an issue of one marriage and multiple gods. That's what intermarriage is talking about. If you ever wonder about that and you're looking like you say, oh, well, intermarrying is wrong. Is that? No, black people can marry white people or Hispanic or Chinese or whatever. But the point that God's making 
You don't want one marriage with multiple gods. You don't want one marriage with two gods. That's what intermarriage is, is, is that he's talking about. So, um, they've gone against God's design for marriage, against God's design to be equally yoked, and they have just yoked themselves with others who don't worship their God, and they've turned to worshiping foreign gods because of it. And here's what I want you to see at the close here. Look at 10, 1 through 7. Look what happens. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jael, and the sons of Elam addressed Ezra, We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. And even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. How those wives and children were cared for, I don't know. That's out of my realm of understanding. And it says in verse 4, Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. So the sinful people heard the word. They're confessing their sin, and they're looking at their leadership saying, Be strong and do this. We're, we're, we're with you. We have to make this right. We have to move in true repentance as we confess. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from them before the house of God and went to the chamber of Jehonan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking. Here he's fasting again. for the, uh, He was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem. And that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, his property should be forfeited and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. It's kind of an early version of church discipline. If you're not going to get in line with what is right and you're not going to listen to what has been said from the word and you're not going to um, respond in, in repentance, then and they're saying your, your land would be forfeited, your property. Then all the men of Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month. And the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, you've broken faith and married foreign women and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now then make confessions to the Lord, the God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so, we must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it's a time of heavy rain, and we cannot stand in the open. Nor is this a task for one day or for two. For we have greatly transgressed in this manner. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. The whole assembly. Let all our cities who have, been take, who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times. And with them the elders and judges over every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jezuiah, blah, 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 um, opposed this, and Meshullam and Shabbatiah the Levite supported them. There's, I love that it's noted. Someone didn't agree. Someone opposed, and his name was written down. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of houses, according to their father's houses, each one of them designated by name on the first day of the 10th month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. Now, in closing, God's word will bring about true repentance because it reveals our sin. And there's two things to consider. Interesting that the opposition is noted. Um, and second, consider how tedious the process of repentance was. Tedious, but worthwhile. Sometimes we think we're going to fix things, just bam. Okay, I'm never going to do that again. <laughs> Done. And it doesn't work like that. 
This process was tedious but worthwhile. So how might this play out for us? Well, first, when we have sin in our life, it's in the hearing of God's word that that sin will be revealed. And upon being revealed, we're called to repent. It may be an unexpected outburst of anger. It may be a moment where a huge lapse in judgment happens. It may be a lustful look at someone who is not your spouse. It may be a pattern of unbelief in regard to your finances. Or it may be a lifelong addiction. And when it's revealed and seen by the Christian as sin, the Christian does not respond with cool indifference. We're to see sin the way that God sees sin. And he tells us to put it to death. He don't dabble in it. Put it to death. And if you don't see sin in such a corrosive manner, pray and ask God to open your eyes to the truth. And if upon seeing your sin, you realize it's going to take a lot of work to make this right. When Lindsay and I first moved here, I had a ton of debt from living some entitled um, fairy tale in North Dallas. And I was driving a truck that I had no business driving, all these things. And we're like, you know what? Since we're going to be in ministry, we should probably be faithful in giving. Things like that go, should go together. And so we looked at it, and I was like, okay, that's cool. Um, I, I'm not like a math whiz, but I know simple mathematics, and this ain't going to work. Like if I write that check, those people are going to be mad at me, and those people at that bank are going to be mad at me, and that people who technically owns most of that car is going to be mad at me. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at it saying, I can't fix this overnight. Like I want to repent. I want to make this right, but I, I, can't, I can't just fix this immediately. And so what happened was we had to make changes, and it took a little bit of time to make changes. To, um, I drove a little red scooter for two years. It was awesome, and that was, that was like step one of doing that, but it didn't happen overnight. So um, we don't back down. We want to be diligent, as it says in Ezra. And Dever notes, no sin is worth keeping at the cost of losing Christ. No sin is worth keeping at the cost of losing Christ. Hope does remain, and John says in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Ezra foreshadowed Jesus by speaking the word, and Christ is the word. And if we keep him central in all of our life, we will walk in a manner that is encouraged, mobilized, and passionate for the glory of God. So let's close by praying for a few of the things we mentioned earlier. Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you uh, for our time in Ezra tonight. Um, I confess it feels uh, a little bit rushed, and I hope that that didn't that hasn't caused us to lose sight of anything maybe you want us to see. I trust the Spirit in that. Um, pray for diligence in that in the future. Uh, Lord, as we, as we look at some of the things that keep us from persevering faithfully, a lot of it is our own sin, selfishness, uh, being tired of doing the right thing, busy schedules, um, frustrations. Lord, each of those things that have been mentioned, uh, we lift them up and ask that you would help us to, uh, to persevere faithfully, knowing that you are a good God um, who is very mighty and very powerful. Uh, I pray that as we engage the word and are engaged with the word, uh, that it would uh, motivate us, mobilize us, reveal our sin, and ultimately lead us to repentance that we would glorify you more in our lives. Uh, we love you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.